Welcome to the Leading with Data podcast, your show where we cover the intersection of data, analytics, trends, strategy, and so much more to drive results. This podcast is brought to you by Molecula and Oracle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Leading with Data podcast. We are so fired up that you are here with us today. I've got a fantastic guest. His name is John Lair, and he is the co-founder and general partner of Workbench, a fantastic enterprise-focused venture capital firm based in New York City. I've so enjoyed getting to know John, hear about his investment strategies, the fantastic companies that they're supporting. And one of my favorite fun facts about John is he is the founder of the New York Enterprise Tech Meetup, which now is over eight years old, and get this, with 8,000 members. I mean, talk about the person that we want to have on the show when it comes to data. So, John, welcome so much to Leading with Data. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, well, it's just, it's an honor to have you and, and get to share in your experience and your story. You know, you have such an interesting background. Would you share with me, how did you get into your current role? Can you just give all of us a sense of your story? Because I'd love for everybody to hear it. Totally. So before co-founding Workbench, uh, I actually used to work at Morgan Stanley in a really fun role in IT called the Office of the CIO. And in that role, I would meet hundreds of startups a year, all with the goal of figuring out which aligned to technology and business pain points we had. And then I would help the startups sell into Morgan Stanley as vendors. Many people don't realize this, but Wall Street tends to be the earliest and largest adopter of enterprise software. So it was an incredible training ground on enterprise tech early in my career. And one of the hats that I wore in that role that really ties into the data angle of this podcast is that as a regulated bank, we had to review the financials of every startup that we did business with. Huh. So I was privy to understanding the P&Ls of companies like Box, DocuSign, Cloudera, all now massive companies, but really in their earliest days, get a front row seat to how they were growing, how they were scaling. And it really demonstrated to me that massive businesses could get built in the enterprise. And when you paired that with the contracts that I saw, early stage companies closing with us at Morgan Stanley, it really shone the light on what an incredible opportunity it would be to be an enterprise tech focused venture capitalist. Well, so you bet you're telling us you got to look under the hood of all these incredible businesses. Uh, I'm sure you got to see some amazing ones and also some not amazing ones. And the, and the contrast is probably uh, helpful. Were, were you ever sort of shocked by the numbers where you sort of walked away and like, wow, I can't believe those are their numbers? Uh, that happened actually all the time. And it would happen in both cases, good and bad. Sometimes you would <laughs> see super highly valued startups that had pretty de minimis revenues. And sometimes you would see those under the radar companies that were just growing tremendous businesses in very cash efficient ways and closing deals with people like us and our other peers on Wall Street. Well, and I love the fact that you bring sort of that banking expertise when it comes to thinking about and looking at data because it is a different hat to wear when you're combining banking data uh, with tech data. I just think it's super fascinating as somebody who spends a lot of time, you know, I work in a lot of regulated industries and it's, it's such a, a strong filter 
to have to develop like a muscle to be able to figure out, you know, what, what, what's real, what's not real, what can you say, what can you not say, and how does all this work? And in your particular case, I mean, you've got to think about security in addition to everything else. So uh, thanks so much for sharing that. And so give us just a sense, sort of a timeline, you know, how long were you there? And then how did that lead into WorkBench? Like sort of put it together for us that are just sort of following along now. Sure. So I was there at the tail end of the financial crisis in 2010, spent a little over three years at the firm. And then I had an incredible opportunity to co-found Workbench with my co-founder, Jessica Lynn, who shared a similar background coming from the IT world. She actually used to work at Cisco Systems, large tech company, on their agile software transformation. And Jess and I wanted to launch a venture fund together. And we had a bit of an interesting origin story where our anchor LP and our first fund actually wanted exposure to the New York enterprise tech ecosystem to apply digital transformation to their business. And me and Jess were actually brought together to launch Workbench and then uh, given a blank slate to create this strategy that we've developed over the last few years. Wow, that's so interesting. So uh, how did you meet Jess originally? This, per- this person, uh, you know, connected y'all and said, hey, we think there's something there or y'all have different strengths. Like, tell us a little bit more. I'm always fascinated on, how, I mean, obviously Jess is a rock star. So tell us, how did y'all like sort of come together, figure out each other's strengths and sort of how to think through ultimately investing in enterprise, which is so data-driven? Yeah, so while I was at Morgan Stanley, seeing all of these surprisingly early stage and of course late stage companies do business with the firm, my eyes were really open to the opportunity for enterprise tech. And as you pointed out in my intro, uh, I then started the New York enterprise tech meetup in my nights and weekends, because as I looked around the New York ecosystem, I realized that we have all of the early adopter buyers in town in New York. We have financial services, pharma, media, But meanwhile, most of the startups were actually on the West Coast from Silicon Valley flying in to sell into all of these large Fortune 500s. So I wondered why are there so many meetups in New York focused on consumer tech, but none around enterprise? Hmm. So with that, I launched the enterprise meetup focused on bringing together what we affectionately call at Workbench, the suits and the hoodies, aka <laughs> the corporates that, that and the startups. That may be my quote of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have in our office the tagline, great things happen at the intersection of suits and hoodies on our wall. <laughs> and, and that really defines us. And I was doing that in my nights and weekends and built a bit of a name for myself for an, in enterprise tech in New York. And Jess had actually worked with one of our LP's advisors previously and we were put together Jess moved to New York and uh, we were able to launch Workbench so Jess always jokes that it was a professional arranged marriage and seven years later uh, great co-founders and very lucky to be working with each other every day. Wow that's fantastic and I know you've got uh, a lot of different data-driven companies that you work with so you know uh, what, what I would love to hear I mean obviously the focus of our podcast is data and thinking about leading with data and all the different ways to look at data and, and its intersection with leadership. So just sort of stepping into that, what do you think is the most important decision that you've made using data uh, and how did it work out? I mean, that's, I'm super curious about this. Yeah. So it's a highly relevant question for us because our entire strategy at Workbench is predicated on fundamentally rethinking the enterprise VC model. And while most VCs that invest in post-seed enterprise startups, most of them look at traditional SaaS metrics, right? You've got different KPIs to look at sales efficiency. You look at things like gross margins and other metrics. But our team's backgrounds in corporate IT actually expose to us a metric and some data that is invisible to most Mm. other investors. 
And that metric is customer appetite to buy. Now at Workbench, all of us were based in New York City. And over the last seven years, we've built a network of over 750 line of business executives, again, across the different industries I mentioned, like financial services, pharma, media. And these represent the three earliest adopter industries. We regularly engage with that IT executive community to understand what are top of mind pain points that they have and where are budget dollars flowing. It was frankly a surprise to me when during my Morgan Stanley days that no one did this because if you back up a second and you think about enterprise software investing, you have Fortune 500 pain points, you have priorities and you have budget dollars. So the big question that Jess and I always had in the early days of Workbench is, why has no one started with the pain point and then backed into who are the best startups solving that solution, solving that pain with the novel solution and then bring them together? So that really is the crux of our model. And what's really great is when I getting back to that point around invisible insights, for us with an IT network this deep, frankly, all in our backyard in New York, by regularly engaging with them, not only do I identif we identify interesting markets and sectors to invest in, but when we're looking at a startup and performing diligence, on top of all the other work that a VC will do around team, product, and market, we can actually get feedback from an end customer. And it doesn't have to be that they sign a check today, but what they'll tell us is, hey, this startup, totally novel approach, that pro their product roadmap aligns to our internal need at X Fortune 100 company, right? Another big bank could say, hey, they actually could meet our scalability and security requirements which you can appreciate, Jason, many startups cannot do in their earliest days. And all of that feedback funnels into us during the diligence process, and it helps us build conviction and really invest in some of these winners, particularly early, sometimes even pre-revenue. And that's really the key factor for Workbench, where being thesis-driven, we can get ahead of some of these larger investors in these enterprise startups because with their fund size and their check sizes, they require certain revenue thresholds and other metrics. But with the feedback from our corporate network, we're accessing this data, this input that gives us great decision-making at an earlier stage without taking on too much additional risk. Yeah, and what I love about that is it's super hard to replicate what you just described. I mean, you, you can't build that type of uh, relationship and depth of trust uh, with 700 you know, potential buyers or influencers uh, at these uh, sort of end industry-leading organizations. And that takes a lot of time and, and a lot of you know, social currency, frankly, to get to for them to be able to not just uh, be a quota part of your network, but actually respond to you when you have questions, when you have requests, let you know what they're doing, what they're thinking, and what their needs are. And I got to believe, as somebody who I obviously sit on a lot of startup boards, that it's a massive value to the startups because now you've got data that they don't have and as well as a relationship that they don't have. So not only are you putting in dollars, but you're doing with what all VCs love to say that they're going to do, which is make introductions, but you are, are truly walking them into potential buyers. I mean, that, that's got to be something that you, you market, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we market the hell out of that. And when you think it's exactly as you say, because from the startup's perspective, an enterprise sale could be 9, 12, 15 months or longer. And for us, if we can accelerate that, and also importantly, really make that initial intro to the right person at the right time, we save them weeks, if not months of effort. So forgetting the ones that even are a fit and they go on and they can make a sale, if you can help a startup avoid the bad eggs, those maybes, where they're getting an intro to one person or hopping around to another, getting shipped to another, if you think about the bandwidth that it takes from an early stage startup 
that's trying to land their first handful of customers, that net burn clock is ticking relative to their cash. And we help really make sure that we can help identify that go-to-market fit. Mm, yeah, so fascinating. Uh, and so, so let's lead into our next question. Then what do you think, or what's, a, what's an unexpected opinion? I can't wait for this answer. What is an unexpected opinion you have about data or the future of data? So I think that there's going to be several high-profile incidents of AI systems, unfortunately, going horribly wrong. And there might be some catastrophic effects related. And I do think the silver lining is that people will learn from these incidents and recognize the need to build in proper guardrails from day one. And I think that's really going to lead to AI that's truly observable and controllable. But just to share a few examples of what I mean, right, there was the famous night trading debacle, which led to a $440 million loss in an hour because of that black box trading algorithm. There was that unfortunate incident with the Boeing 737 MAX where sensors started feeding a model bad data and the model decided the plane was about to stall and kept forcing the nose down. You think recently examples on the bias front of things like the Apple cart snafu with Goldman Sachs where a husband and wife, one was accepted and the wife was declined even though they have the same credit score. And even if you've seen all the Silicon Valley buzz lately with things like GPT-3, Yes, it's great technology, but it was spewing out racist answers left and right. So not sure if it's unexpected opinion or just unfortunately like a practical view of like, where are we in the world? There is a lot of hype and there's a ton of potential for where AIML is going to fundamentally rethink industries and bring tons of efficiencies. But really, we do need to make sure that those guardrails are in place to just protect people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think too often we just we just trust the technology, not recognizing that it can create as many problems or bigger problems uh, than the solutions it, it's designed to solve. So uh, it's interesting. And I don't know that if it's unexpected. I just think that's a, a really important opinion that people don't talk about. And I would argue a lot in the tech community don't want to talk about, right? We don't, we don't want to bring up all these potential side effects or, you know, black swan events, whatever you want to call them, that could come from just trusting so heavily uh, in the algorithm and, and these inputs to always work and work accurately. And then what you find, as you pointed out, just massive bias that exists in the system and then suddenly comes to the surface. So uh, thank you for that one. I love that. All right. So, so let's sort of switch now from just thinking about your, your views on data, because you'd have so many data-driven companies in your portfolio. I've obviously gone through and looked at some of them. You've got some just really impressive businesses there. But what do you think uh, when is, is most important when it comes to being an effective leader now, right? You've got, you have a number of startups and different companies in various stages. You, you've been doing this for quite a while. So what do you think is most important to being an effective leader now? So we're going to talk about that intersection of leadership and data. What stands out to you uh, sort of across the portfolio as you look at all the great founders and executive teams you work with? Totally. So the, the fun but also challenging part of launching a startup is the amount of uncertainty, right? If it was in the obvious insight, a million companies would be doing it and you wouldn't really be a venture back startup. But for our founders that do have that novel insight, they're launching, right? And they build a product and they start going to market and then they start scaling their teams. And one of the attributes that we found that's critical is really agility. Because to really tie it into data, you're sometimes going to test a go-to-market motion. Should we go bottoms up here? Should we try a mid-level executive and grow within an organization, right? And in the earliest days, you may not know, but it's the ability to run different tests 
And then most importantly, measure that data, what is working, what's not, and then respond very quickly and efficiently. Again, to my mm-hmm. earlier comment, startups always have a clock ticking in terms of their cash balance decreasing, right? They need to make sure that they're rushing towards that next milestone across revenue, customers, growth, et cetera. And the ability to be agile and run measured experiments on all things from the marketing motion that they have to take, different branding to break out from maybe competitive um, sectors where there's a lot of players. How do they break out from a messaging? How do they make themselves known? How do they test different go-to-market motions? Even something to, do we hire an established player from a larger company that's been there, done that? Or do we hire this mid-level, potentially uh, person that could grow a ton and really deliver and out-hustle everyone and maybe level up? And it's coming in with that tested and that mind around here's what I want to see and being honest and trying, it's hard in startup world, but trying to keep emotions out of it and making sure that you're measuring what's best for the business. Yeah. And do you find, I mean, to me, one of the toughest leaps is somebody who works with a lot of founders and companies that are trying to scale is it can be really hard for a founder to be able to grow fast enough, particularly if it's, you know, one of their first companies to grow fast enough to be able to scale with the business. Uh, Is that something that you've seen? And if so, how do you respond to that? So fortunately, many of our founders, uh, most of our, almost all of our founders uh, are still with their companies that they've continued to scale and they remain on the leadership teams there. But it is a well-known thing in startup world where some bigger funds, there's kind of that notion that if they invest in you, if you don't deliver as the founder CEO, you may get replaced by a quote unquote professional CEO. Um, We try to get ahead of that. We are investing in the founders because, again, they often have that experience set that's highly relevant and they have the novel insights to really scale this business. So what we try to do is we take a very much a community approach where we do a lot, not just for the founders, but for their VPs of marketing, their VPs of sales, their VPs of product and customer success through our workbench community. We do tons of tactical events to give them leverage on their time right? A founder is trying to up-level their exec team. And if we can do a ton of peer learning and then also bring in later stage experts to coach those VPs, it gives them tons of leverage. So that's number one, you give them more time back. Number two is a very critical skill, which is delegation. It's very easy to get overwhelmed as a founder. You have a million different things that require your input, a ton of data you're trying to assess, again, in different areas, whether it's your sales strategy, your product, et cetera. And we take a very hands-on approach to sharing our own best practices we've seen from other successful companies, and then also arming them with relevant advisors early on so that we can get ahead of potential issues and really coach them along the way. Because our favorite, most meaningful thing is when that founder grows with every subsequent financing and milestone and hitting 10 or 30 or whatnot of ARR and growing bigger and bigger, seeing the founder him or herself also as a leader growing and that feeling to see the company make their impact, see the leadership team grow, see a whole company evolve. It it makes the job so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I get to work with so many founders, whether it's on the board or as an advisor and, and it is powerful 
for me to see how you can really fast track or shortcut learning. There's some things that you really can by bringing in third parties to help them. I mean, obviously that's what we do, but there are also some things that people sometimes just got to learn on their own. I mean, they, they, they got to go through and, and scrape their knees in order to figure out how to, how to do some of these things. And so it's always fascinating for me to see that. Uh, and so thanks for that, that take on it. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. And maybe it's, it's sort of similar to that. How has data shaped your leadership strategy? So for us, again, as a venture fund, we really have marketed ourselves as very hands-on, really focused on enterprise go-to-market. So data is at the essence of what we do. I mean, it's continually staying true to that customer network that we have of corporate executives. It's continually asking that one additional question, right? If it's an area like site reliability engineering or customer success or employee mental health, when we spend time with those execs to really build these theses, we try to get as granular as possible to understand what's truly going on, what are the drivers here in these segments, and what do we need to look for in startups that we think can break out. And when I, we apply that sort of mentality and approach from the investing side to how Jess and I have even grown our team of five, uh, a lot of venture funds have this bifurcation of there's the investors somewhat in the ivory tower, and then there's all, everything else, right? There could be portfolio support team, BD, comms, marketing support, et cetera, that doesn't touch the investment side of the house. We coming at it from, again, sort of a clean lens from the IT backgrounds, not from larger venture funds, our leadership view is everyone should wear all hats. If our thesis and our strategy at Workbench is start with the corporate pain point, find the best startups, play matchmaker, help these companies scale within each of us having our own domains, why wouldn't we talk to the corporates and know all the startups in the space? It makes us more effective at what we do. It lets us hone our lens better. And culturally, all of us on the team are aligned on a similar goal working together. So uh, we've been doing this now seven years and we have a very tight knit team. And it's one of the things that Jess and I are most proud of around what we built. Well, and I love that you've built this with a partner. I just, I think, you know, as a data point, you know, I work with people that are solo founders and then people that are, you have co-founders and, you know, there's a, a big debate, obviously, that, that we all hear about what's the right number of founders and so forth. But just the way that you speak about, you know, having Jess as your partner in this is, is really fabulous. Obviously, Denise has been my partner in our company here. And, and it's just, I think there's something really powerful about that. So uh, looking ahead, what is one prediction? And I'm curious about this because you obviously deal with a lot of forward-facing businesses. What is one prediction that you have about the future of data and business? I think that a lot of the interesting tooling for handling data, so that could be everything from AI infrastructure to data pipeline software to explainable AI guardrails, a lot of that technology that gets a lot of press in Silicon Valley actually is going to then be relevant to the Fortune 500 to re fundamentally rethink a lot of their businesses. So a few examples, I can talk publicly because it was in the Wall Street Journal, Humana is working with our company, Arthur, that provides explainable AI software and model monitoring because COVID totally just like threw off all of their models that was based on historical data that's no longer relevant right now. Mm -hmm. So this is a seed back company that is making an impact on a large corporation like Humana. We've got companies like Datalog that are working with large pharma and large telco companies, and they've aggregated for large pharma 
40 different ERP systems in a supply chain use case where they're able to actually let a data scientist now run their calculations, run their analytics much quicker and faster because they've got automated clean data on their hands to work with. Mm -hmm. And what's really exciting for us is, but again, whether it's financial services, pharma, media, I have tons of examples of different companies we work with that are bringing efficiencies and new capabilities to their business. And, you know, there's always a lot of fear around AI is taking all these jobs. Uh, What we've seen is just augmenting of current labor forces with a lot of our companies. And it really provides a great partnership for that Fortune 500 company and the startup to work together. I love it. Okay. And now my favorite question, you know, drum roll. So I always love to end on this question. Uh, What is your favorite? I mean, we've had a great conversation. I love hearing your perspective on this and it's so nice. We have have a lot of just uh, very technical uh, conversations. And so just to get to hear your broader perspective, I think adds a lot to the podcast series. So thank you so much for that. So what is your favorite leadership quote saying or motto and why? That's a very easy one. So Jess and I always joke that, yes, we're a venture fund, but we've been building it with our blood, sweat, and tears for seven and a half years. And we experienced a lot of the highest highs and lowest lows of building a company ourselves. And our favorite mantra is actually a Yiddish term. The word is besheret. And besheret means it was meant to be. So we give our all on the team and sometimes the outcomes are great and sometimes they in the short term, don't appear to be in our favor. But what Bashar means in that case is in the long haul, things always have a way of working out. And we take that optimistic view and know that we're doing the right things, keep fighting the good fight, and in the long run, it'll work out. Love it. And John, if, uh, if our listeners wanted to engage with you, where could they go on social media, or LinkedIn, Twitter? What would be the best way to, to stay in touch with you and stay up to date with what you're working on? Yeah. So two great ways. Number one is go to our website, www.work-bench.com. We put out an enterprise weekly newsletter for the last six years, every single Friday with top enterprise news, both from a business and technology perspective, events that we're hosting, key fundings that occurred in the enterprise startup ecosystem. So definitely sign up for that. And then on Twitter, tend to be pretty active. And my name, my user ID is Fendian, F-E-N-D-I-E-N. All right. Well, you heard it, heard it here. John, thank you so much for a fantastic show here on Leading with Data. It has been a real pleasure. We hope to have you back on. Awesome. Thank you so much again. This was a blast. Thanks for joining us on the Leading with Data podcast brought to you by Oracle and Molecula. We look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. Podcast.